Hi everyone, welcome to the Focal Collective Podcast, where we discuss film photography and showcase the film photographers in our community. I'm Mike Lindell, a co-founder of Focal Collective, and I'm joined by our co-hosts, Mark Makobiak and Drew Folgman, and our guest, Nick Chismar. Hi everyone, uh, I'm Nick. Looking forward to uh, the evening. Yeah, so uh, Nick, thank you so much for joining, man. We got that photo series of yours from the uh, World War II reenactment. And we were blown away with some of the color renderings that you had from your Portrait 400 stock and how realistic a lot of those photos really came out. We have that article on focalcollective.com, our website, and we just wanted to have a chit chat about what some of your inspiration was for the shoot, maybe how often you're going there. Tell us a little bit about yourself and, and your relationship with film photography. Um, yeah, we, we'd love to hear all about it. Well, photography really started for me I've probably been shooting now for like seven years or so. Um, kind of picked it up going into high school or so, um, midway through high school. And I started off digitally. And I didn't get into film until going to Moravian College and starting there. And one of the professors I had for a film course really got me just knee deep in the whole thing. And he basically says, like, once you get started, it's a sickness. And it really is. But, um, yeah, we're all definitely infected over here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so this World War II weekend, it's this massive air show, World War II event that happens every year in Reading, Pennsylvania. And I've been going to it with my dad for, I believe, this June. If it still goes on in June, it'll be the 17th year in a row. So it's just an awesome event. It's like the kickoff to my summer. So it's so, kind of raised you for 17 years to kick off every summer. Pretty much. Yeah. That's that's crazy. I, I don't think I've ever done a tradition longer than, I mean, like aside from the your boilerplate holidays. That's cool. I mean, it's just, it's an awesome event. I mean, it, it's gotten, they have a lot of veterans that come in and the veteran community has like shrunk over the years. Uh, one of my goals this year is going to be to take photos of veterans and they're, because uh, they have displays with them and stuff like that. So get some photos of them the people that are with them. There's a lot of veterans that bring their families and stuff. So especially as the World War II veteran community starts to really, uh, unfortunately, come to an end, I mean, it's going to be important to document the guys that are still making it out to the show and telling their stories. Definitely. It's it's crazy to me how realistic the setups um, that they have going on there are. Um, they definitely, you can tell that they definitely put a lot into it. Um, just some of the details of... You know the the signs um, with the German words on it and everything. It's kind of it's really cool to see. Yeah, a lot of the guys. I mean, it takes a lot of money and, and time and investment and stuff like that to do a lot of these reenactments. But these guys, they love what they do, and they a lot of them live it almost every day. And events for stuff like this, it's just year round. I mean, they could travel from inside the U.S., go overseas for events. There's some people that come from, there's one family, actually, they're from Russia, I forget where, but they do Soviet reenacting as members of the Red Army. And it's this guy and his kids, and they all dress up, and they come to the United States every year for the summer to go to these different events and reenactments. And they come to Reading for World War II weekend. They've been there the last four or five years, or maybe even more. But I mean, everything like down to the smallest detail is just authentic and accurate. And it's really impressive when you think about how much has to go into this to make this event happen. 
especially yeah. from like the reenacting end. I was actually going to say, like, I've I've been to a couple here and there World War II reenactments, and they don't seem quite as epic as the one that you showed us. So I, I feel like a lot of time, research, development, um, acting, resources, like all that goes into that production. And I, I'm jealous. It looks so sick. <laughs> well, this is, if I'm not mistaken, this is the largest World War II event in the United States. I mean, there's got it, got it. other events around the world and there's massive air shows and stuff like that. But this event, it kind of marries both of them because you have reenactments that are going on and battles that are going on. But then you also have vintage aircraft from all over the country. And then there's been aircraft that have been flown over from Europe sometimes um, in previous years that are taking part of the air show that's going on at the same exact time. So, I mean, you get there at the beginning of the day, things are kind of slow. People are getting acclimated to what's going on, trying to figure out where they want to go. And then as soon as it hits about 11 o'clock or noon, it's just constant things going on. I mean, you have aircraft doing aerobatics and displays in the air, and then there's a battle going on on the other side of the field. And there's just constantly, there's constant, there's, it's just epic, really. <laughs> there's always something going on. You can't really miss anything. It's like every direction you turn, there's either like a fighter jet going overhead or a blast radius happening behind you or something like that. I see they have some pyrotechnics too. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, one of the highlights every year is the, um, the flamethrower demonstration. And when they start doing that, it's usually, there's usually a battle in this. They've built a French village kind of tucked down below the taxi strips because this event takes place at Reading Regional Airport, which is active until like 10 a.m. in the morning and then they shut it down for regular flights. So when this is going on, they have this village that they built down below the airport and there's a battle that goes on there. And then maybe a half an hour later, out next to the actual runway for the airport, they just let the grass grow out and they have hay bales out there and they have a little makeshift battlefield and they do a whole reenactment of the Pacific Theater. And I mean, they're out there and everyone's shooting and stuff like that, but the biggest part of it is the flamethrowers. And the last couple of years, they've had two or three guys with working flamethrowers out there doing the demonstrations. I mean, as soon as they start ripping on that. I mean, you could feel the heat from 50, 75 yards away. It's just that intense. Wow. And I mean, and as like the your arm hair is singeing a little bit too. Oh, I can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> Especially if you're up out in the field and you're doing the reenactment, you're out there. I mean, you're wearing the old cotton uniforms, heavy gear. I mean, you got a steel pot helmet on, your rifle is like 10, 12 pounds. And then next to you is a guy just spewing flames all over the field stuff's catching on fire and all that i mean it's it's epic and intense at a reenactment level but then to think about what it would have been like on the actual battlefield at the same time with the noise and the heat and all that i mean for sure you get a little bit of a taste here because there's planes flying around while this is all going on but i mean for like me as a spectator i'm like 50 to 75 yards away behind a fence and you can't get any closer than that, but I mean, it's it's really Maybe even near a recession or a, a uh, like the snack stand too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, so you're do they have, in the heat of the action. Yeah. So do they have a lot of the um, the reenactments in chronological order as they kind of happen throughout history, or is there just like a schedule, or is it kind of just randomly everything? Some you know something's going on at all times. There's usually something going on at all times. I mean, 
they don't really have any reenactments set apart like year wise or anything like that. But um, they break them up into the different theaters. Um, in the last couple of years, actually, they've been trying to implement some of the more historical battles and like getting some more reenactments and people in that are reenacting for Chinese liberation fighters and stuff like that. Uh, there's a lot of people that dress up as the French resistance and these groups, when they come in, they have their entire encampments because most of these reenactors either stay at a hotel in Reading or they actually stay in their camps on the field. So when you're walking around, you see the tents and these camps everywhere. They're actually living there at night and they're sleeping there, eating and all that. So you're walking around, you see someone's like mess kit out and there's like food in it. It's not just for show. They're actually like using that in the evening or during the day. So wow, yeah, they're really getting into character, man. Yeah, <laughs> it's really authentic. So um, why don't you tell us a little bit about um, your Minolta SRT 202? Um, I've actually never seen one of those before. So maybe describe it a little bit and tell us about it. Well, the easiest way to describe it is it's just your classic tank of a camera. Um, my dad bought it brand new around like 1976. So he got out of college and that was the first thing that he wanted to buy because the camera itself came out, I think in 1975. So it's only been around for about a year. And I mean, a lot of people know about Minolta and their SRT 101, which was like a bare bones, good basic camera. The 202 took that and added some extra features. So you had your aperture and your shutter speed all inside um, the viewfinder so you could see it. All the controls are pretty easy to reach. And I mean, you kind of get a feel for it after using it for a while. But it's just an old bare bones basic camera. Fully mechanical, just takes a small battery for the light meter if you want to use the light meter. But um, my camera in particular has been with the family this entire time. It's shot who knows how many rolls of film over the years. I mean, it's been around for when my parents got married, um, for my sister, for myself, and then everything in between from like family reunions and such. But it's been at Reading for most of the years that we've gone up until about, well, I shouldn't say for us, because I started going 17 years ago or so, but it, the actual air show started back in like the 80s and it was all high performance stuff, modern jets. So this camera's been used back then. And we actually recently found some old photos from the air show with like Russian MiGs and F-15s and stuff like that. And these are all photos that my dad took using that camera. Wow. So it's been at this air show before and all over the place. And it's just this really solid, reliable camera. I mean, I know out of all the cameras I have, they're all going to take good pictures, but I know no matter what, if I pick up the 202, I'm going to get an image at the end. And if it's messed up, it's probably because I messed it up. So, because it's, it's not the most forgiving camera, but it's a lot now of fun I kinda to wanna, use. I kind of want to see the legacy of these images over the, like the last 20 years, or I guess 40 years of it being used. <laughs> well, I just, I just started scanning some of the prints, so... Well, it's, you got to show us <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna have to. at some point. That's awesome. Yeah. So, um, with this, so is it, so it's all mechanical. You said, so you're set manually setting all the aperture and, um, shutter settings it's, in the camera, correct? Yeah. It's fully manual. Um, 
the only thing the battery powers is the light meter. So when you're advancing the film, you're cocking the shutter at the same time. And it's just your standard old, um, like horizontally traveling cloth or cloth shutter. So mm-hmm. it's not the most special thing in the world, but I mean, it's, it's fairly accurate. And as long as you like, it's just a, a matchstick light meter. So mm-hmm. using it's pretty simple, match it up however you want. I mean, and you just shoot. I mean, it's just a bare bones camera. Yeah. It probably adds a lot more that it's got that nostalgic factor of being in your family for so long. Um, I have a couple cameras like that. I have like this old Olympus that was my grandma's camera, you know, that she took a lot of uh, photos on. And I have a couple, one of my grandpa's cameras. So uh, I I definitely feel like even though they're not super expensive or fancy cameras, there's definitely a little bit more of a nostalgic factor when I'm, you know, still using it to this day and kind of carrying on that legacy. Yeah. I mean, the 202 isn't like the world's, most expensive camera right now i mean you could pick up a minolta srt 202 on ebay for like 80 bucks in really nice shape and i mean the nice thing about them is you have minolta's whole rock core line of lenses mm-hmm. and depending on which one you buy i mean some of them are tack sharp and i have an adapter for my nikon my dslr and i'll use these for different portraits and stuff like that if i have a portrait session and sometimes even for landscapes or if i just want to get creative with like close-up objects because i mean the bokeh that you get with them is pretty unique and and beautiful in certain situations mm-hmm. so i mean you have this massive field of lenses and glass that you could choose from besides like the vivitar stuff and all the other brands that made lenses from Minolta as well but you could pick up a camera for like 50 bucks in okay shape get a good 50 millimeter or something like that put it together i mean you got a nice kit for under 100 bucks yeah, and then awesome. you don't even need a battery. Maybe you have like a handheld light meter. You can just go shoot and have fun with it. So which lenses are you mostly using? That's what I was just about to ask. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I was using, um, when my dad bought the camera, he bought it with a, um, a 50 millimeter F 1.7. And it's a really good lens. It's sharp. It's good in a lot of conditions and stuff like that. And it's, been with the camera since he bought it new so it's it's done everything gone everywhere um, however my dad told me a story a couple of years ago when i first started using the camera that when he bought it he was supposed to get it with their 51.4 which was known to be a sharper lens even when these were like brand new so like the one seven was like your step down from the top and the one four was the top um, but it was it was a sharper lens then, and he bought the camera. It was supposed to have that, but when the store gave him all the stuff, they gave him the wrong lens, and he didn't realize it until it was so many days later when he went to use it, and it wasn't that much of a price difference, so he didn't really care, but he never followed up on it. So we've had the 1.7 with the camera its whole life. So I shot using that lens for probably the last two years, and then through World War II weekend last summer, but... um I think it was last September I picked up a really mint uh, 1.4. And that's a really excellent 50 millimeter. I mean, it's razor sharp. And I don't know how if they changed anything with the coatings on it, but you don't get any ghosting with it. There's no barely any chromatic aberration if you hook it up to your DSLR or something like that. It's very easy to use. I mean, the focus ring on these on these lenses, I mean, they're super smooth. It's not really 
that long of a throw. So you can focus pretty quickly. I mean, once you use it for a while, you just get used to it and you can just work with it lightning fast. So, but I pretty much only use the 50 millimeter when I'm using the camera. I have a 135, uh, a 24 and a couple other lenses, but I don't really break them out too often. Mm-hmm. So, but the whole World War II weekend was shot with the 51.7 and it did pretty good. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing. I'm looking at the photos now and the sharpness, you would think that it was definitely like a, a modern day lens. I mean, they're, you know, especially the photos, um, the portrait 400 photos, uh, like the one that's where it's uh, someone looking through a window and then, um, it looks like a couple guys kind of playing with some prop guns. <laughs> um, those two photos just are super sharp. It definitely caught my eye. So that's a really amazing lens. There was, um, I did an article on the Focal Collective for, uh, as a review of the 202. Mm-hmm. And I used the, um, the 51.4 for the, all the photos of the camera in that situation. So I had it adapted to the, to my Nikon. So, I mean, if you ever look into that and you check out those photos, I mean, some of them aren't like super sharp. I mean, kind of misfocus on where I wanted to be. I mean, that's just me because I, I'm super like, OCD with my photos and stuff like that. But I mean, it's a sharp lens and it works pretty well. I mean, I can imagine it's hard to, you know, kind of manually focusing all of this action going on with, you know, so many people running around and kind of things going on in different directions. It can be hard to really nail that critical focus. Yeah. That's, that's the biggest struggle, especially with world war two weekend and air shows in like particular, because I mean, you got planes that are, going past at like 300 miles an hour and they're so many feet away and you're trying to get a good shot of them. And I'm, I'm standing there with a 50 millimeter in this case at the air show and just trying to get that shot and get it in focus before it's like gone away and I can't get it anymore. or It's just a bad angle. It's pretty difficult to try to get it, which is kind of why I didn't get too many pictures of aircraft last year. I just, mm-hmm. I tried it a few times. I just gave up, but I got to get a, got to bring a zoom next year or for yeah. this summer. So did they have a lot that were um, grounded? Uh, like the photo of the, it looks like Japanese soldiers, I would say. Yeah. Uh, and did they have a lot of planes that were grounded like that, that you could get up and close to? Pretty much all the aircraft that fly in. Um, Cause they have them scheduled throughout the day for like different demonstrations. So almost every aircraft that's there, is like flyable and they take it up and they do the whole aerobatics and all that. But when they're not flying, they're parked in like the actual show field. So you could walk right up to them. The pilots are usually there. You could talk to the pilots. Um, if you're lucky enough, the pilot will let you into the aircraft. Um, there's a couple B 25 Mitchell bombers that show up every year. And usually two or th- um, one or two of them, they usually let you like climb up real quick. You can walk through the bomber you could go in like the different turrets and stuff like that, see the cockpit. And it's pretty cool to like walk around them. Cause I mean, these are 70, 75 year old aircraft and they're still flying and all that. And you get to walk in them. I mean, they're pretty expensive, but they're just rare. And they're mm-hmm. parts of history that you get to experience like that. And then later to see them flying as well is also pretty cool. Yeah. I just can't imagine the maintenance and upkeep on those, but you know, with the old parts and everything going wrong, how they even, 
yeah. manage to keep them fo- up in the air. It's it's incredible. Well, that's one of the things they have. Uh, there's a couple aircraft that offer rides at the event. There's a B-17, uh, B-29 that comes every year. It's Fifi. It's one of only two flying in the whole world. Wow. And there's like a B-25 that does rides, a P-51, which was a fighter. And I mean, they're, they're pretty expensive. I mean, B-17's close to $500 for, for a ticket. And it's you and six or seven other people that are flying on the plane, plus the pilot, co-pilot, engineer, and all that. But I mean, people don't realize that the price you're paying for these tickets, I mean, that's paying to keep the aircraft in the air. Mm-hmm. I mean, between fuel and maintenance. And I mean, the, the older the aircraft gets, I mean, the more checks they have to have. And I mean, parts break and you can't get the parts anymore. So you got to make the parts. So it's just keeping up with that and, and trying to get the money to keep these planes in the air. It's it's pretty difficult. Yeah, I can only imagine. So I see, um, you know, between the the two part series of the World War II reenactment, you, you shot um, Kodak Gold, Portrait 400, um, and a little bit of Tri-X. Uh, which of those stocks would you say is your favorite? Well, at least color-wise, I would have to say Portra, which mm-hmm. is probably everyone's answer, usually. I mean, Portra 400, it's such a versatile film stock. I mean, if you're shooting in, in sunlight or in the evening or something like that, even if you're doing stuff at night, just the way it renders colors, it's just always like you have richness and there's such a varying degree of like the shadows and the depth that you could get with it that it's really just this awesome film stock. And then black and white, I mean, Tri-X is like the tried and true. Mm-hmm. I mean, I got introduced to Tri-X because it's, it's your typical like film stock for classes. So that's what I used in my college course. And I've just stuck with it. I've shot HP5. I have a few roles now of HP5 and I just finished one today actually. Um, but I just love the way Tri-X or Tri-X works with everything. The contrast is just beautiful. I mean, even if you're shooting something that's backlit and you screw it up to a point, you still get a usable image. I mean, if you're lucky enough, but yeah, it's just it's, a good, I, it's a good film. I'm also a, a Tri-X, frequent Tri-X shooter. And I definitely um, agree that, you know, between the Portra 400 and Tri-X is kind of a tried and true running gun type film. Um, they're both running gun film stocks where you can kind of, you know, be a little bit off and somehow it always pulls it off. <laughs> yep. Yeah, that's so, one of the uh, things I, I love about Tri-X is that whole, you might mess up, but you, you're still going to get an image. Oh, definitely. Uh, so what would you say um, between comparing, you know, Kodak Gold and Portrait 400, um, what would you say that you felt that the major differences are between the two? And, you know, besides that color rendering, um, do you think that maybe Kodak Gold would be something, a good replacement to for, Portrait 400 that you would use more frequently, you know, maybe because price reasons or whatnot? Well, especially now with uh, the recent price hike, I mean, Portra's getting pretty expensive. Mm-hmm. So from a price standpoint, I mean, gold is definitely going to be in my arsenal a lot more often. Um, I think, honestly, they're, they're I don't want to say they're comparable, but they're both excellent film stocks. And I mean, gold has its own way of doing colors. I mean, it's it's a relatively vibrant film. 
and it's it's really nice to to use and work with and all that. But I mean, I have a few rolls of Porcher now, but actually lately I've been shooting a lot of Pro Image 100 and mm-hmm. um, Ultra Max 400. So I haven't really shot gold probably in the last few months. Oh, so wow. yeah, I feel I definitely feel like there's a an Ultra Max revival going on ever since the Portra 400 price hike. Um, I feel like a lot of people are kind of, I, I think there a lot of people got back into film recently and then everyone just kind of defaulted to Portra 400, but that, yep. that crowd is kind of maturing and going to other stocks, which is kind of cool to see, um, for, you know, from an avid film shooters perspective. And that's, that's kind of something that happened with me, at least from choosing film. Um, I mean, I watch, various YouTubers and shooting film and stuff like that. And everyone's shooting portrait 160 or 400. So, I mean, for people like myself looking at that being like, Oh, well I'm going to go pick up some portrait and I'm going to start getting some cool images. But it wasn't until recently. I mean, I found pro image 100 online, picked up a um, five pack of that shot it. And I love it. I mean, it's an excellent film stock. It's got, it's kind of, I don't want to say it's cooler in color it's kind of like a mix between ultramax and portrait if that makes sense just in the way that it renders things but in kind of like a a colder fashion but it's probably i think it's the cheapest maybe next to gold 200 but the cheapest kodak film you could buy is a color stock and it's just fantastic so i started shooting that and i went to pick up some more in my local um my local lab and barbara who's an awesome lady that works there. She said to me, he's like, have you ever tried Ultramax? I'm just like, no, I haven't. So she actually gave me a roll of 24 for Ultramax just to go shoot and try it out. And I mean, I've shot 10 or 15 rolls of that in the last few months, just trying it out, different lighting situations and all that. And I mean, that's a fantastic film as well. So, I mean, from a price point and I guess like you were saying, kind of maturing with, with film, um, Portra's slowly been becoming less and less in my arsenal, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And I've slowly been replacing it with Ultra Max and Pro Image. And there's probably going to be some more gold 200 in there because 200 speed film is pretty versatile, especially during the day. So, Have you ever experimented with any of the Cine Still films? I haven't actually. I haven't been able to get my hands on any Cine Still yet. Same. I've been trying to get it for the longest time. And every time I go into uh, Sammy's camera, which is out here in LA, it's just fresh out. They're always out of stock. It's driving me crazy. Yeah, I check B&H Photo in New York. I check their website all the time to see if they have it. And it's pretty much always out of stock. And it just pains me so much because I want to try it. No, I shot a couple of rolls of um, 800T and I, I really loved it. But I mean, I think a lot of other people did as well. And Cine still seems to have it. They haven't figured out their whole supply and demand thing <laughs> um, and haven't figured out how they can really keep everything in stock um, as compared to, you know, something like Kodak. Um, so it's I'm, I'm dying to shoot more of it. I just was curious. So, I, I kind of assumed it was intentional. If they're like intentionally limiting the supply, it raises the demand and then they can have their prices probably around where Portra is anyway. Maybe. At least that, that's what I thought their strategy was. It might not be. They may just not be making it fast enough. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think people are just buying it up, but who knows? Yeah, well, it's, it's kind of become like mythical in a way because of how hard it is to get. And I mean, when you see people online that are posting photos with it, it looks fantastic. And then you go online to see if you could buy some. It's not there. And then suddenly someone on Instagram's like, just got some Cinestill and I'm going to go shoot it tonight. So it's like this constant like lust for it. It's yeah. keeping people looking for it. Yeah. And then I know it's like, at least more often than not, when I see people posting online, it's uh, gas stations and neon signs and they look phenomenal for like no reason. <laughs> yeah. It's because it's um, the way that they do the last layer, it, it does, um, I can't remember exactly what it is, but it creates that cinematic halation um, of the, you know, the red halos um, along all the lights. And it just adds a, a different aspect that I haven't seen with a lot of other films. Um, but yeah, it's really cool. And I, I'm hoping to shoot a lot more of it. <laughs> I've been dying because I live here in South beach, um, Miami. Um, and so I've been really wanting to shoot it at night with the ocean drive neon signs of the art deco district. Um, I just think it'd be really cool, but haven't been able to find any. <laughs> so that's a problem. I, I have seen they would have stock of medium format, mm-hmm. like, like 120, but I just don't have a 120 camera. Yeah, I've just always been. I mean, I'm always trying to get more bang for my buck with my 35 right. millimeter. <laughs> I save I save medium format, even though I have it for those specific shots. But um, Nick, why don't you tell us a little bit about um, you know these photos that you took in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, of the factories and the industrial warehouse kind of look? Um, those are super cool. Yeah, sure. I mean, those are all taken during my. Uh my film course that I took it was either freshman or sophomore year of college at Moravian. And I'm a senior now, so it's not too long ago, but um, basically that's, these are photos that were taken at the, the old Bethlehem steel plant. And I mean, I'm in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. So this was like their main plant. And because of just how historic it is and how many people in our community work there, I mean, pretty much if you live in Bethlehem or in like the Lehigh Valley you've heard of Bethlehem Steel, you know someone that's worked there. I mean, it's, it's touched so many people's lives that when they closed the plant, they immediately started working on a project to revitalize the area. So we have this casino now, and there's an arts complex. We have the National Museum of Industrial History on site. But the big showpiece are these blast furnaces, and there's five of them just lined up. And they're just these big old relics of like a bygone day of steel making. So these are actually from my first, I think it was my first assignment with the class, which was just to go take some photos. And I decided that this is probably the best area for me because I'm a history major involved with the museum and all that. And Bethlehem steel is one of my areas of uh, study. So just to go out there and, and take some photos is like just another day for me. So it was mainly just going out with the SRT 202, had it loaded up with a roll of Tri-X and just trying to take photos that didn't really give away too much saying that like this is closed. Like it, they have the abandoned look mm-hmm. and I wanted that, but I wanted to take photos that just kind of detached it from everything else. Like I didn't want to get any pictures, pictures of the arts complex or the museum I just wanted something that just framed like the old industry. So it was just a nice 
walk in the morning going around taking pictures of the furnaces and all that. And then all the, um, the images on the site itself, those are scans of the silver gelatin prints that I ended up making of them. So, yeah, because I was going to say that um, the uh, for Triax, it definitely does have more of a like silver kind of tonality to it. I feel um, so. Yeah, that's that's all because of the paper. I think it was it's like Ilford Multigrade Four. So, and that's something that I noticed because I mean, looking at like a scan of Triax, it's a lot of darker grays, blacks, and all that. Mm-hmm. And then you look at the scans of like prints that have that people do and prints I've done on Triax with the Ilford paper. I mean, there's like this silver cast to it. And I mean, some people don't like it, but I think it gives a, a pretty interesting look. And I mean, you still look at it and you can say, all right, that's probably Triax. So. Yeah. I was going to say, so that on that article, um, you know, the, the Bethlehem Pennsylvania one, the last photo, um, it definitely looks a little bit more like what I'm used to seeing with Triax. Um, as compared to the other ones where, so that makes sense that it was due to the photo paper. Uh, so, so was this area um, open to the public or did you get special access to be in there and shoot or how did that work? Well, it's all open now. Um, over the last maybe five or 10 years, they've slowly built all this stuff up with the casino and the arts center and all that. And um, one of the, like the highlights of the area is the Hoover Mason trestle which is an old like railroad elevated like railway that used to bring all of, like the coke and iron ore and the materials to make steel to the blast furnaces. And it's like 50 or so feet off the ground. It's pretty high up. And they were able to basically put like a sidewalk over top of it, similar to what they've done in New York city with old like railways and stuff like that. So you can just go up the steps. I mean, and you can walk on this old trestle right next to the blast furnaces. And down below you, there's like a new concert center that's down there, a couple of different concert stages. Because one of the things we host is um, Music Fest every year in Bethlehem. And this has become one of the venues for the concerts. So it's open to the public. I mean, you can walk around. You can't get into the furnaces or into any of the old mill buildings without permission from like the owners but you could at least walk around them and get some pretty neat views and shots. That sounds like almost the next project is trying to contact the building owners and uh, get in there to kind of see the abandoned life inside. Yeah, definitely. Um, One of the old buildings on site, it's the number two machine shop. It's this massive old factory building and the casino that owns it and the different property groups, they're looking at possibly putting a water park in there and all this other stuff. And myself and a few other photographers, (laughs) it would be sick. Um, But myself and a few other photographers, we're trying to contact these people to like get in there and get some photos before they possibly start construction. I don't know where they are in like the process with zoning or anything like that. But it's like just to get in there before they start changing things because it's just this old like abandoned feel like the roof of the one building's getting ripped off. It's just these massive sheets of steel that are falling off of it. And there's just holes in the building. And I mean, cause you can walk relatively close to the machine shop and you can look down the entire thing. It's like, I don't know how long it is. It's like a quarter of a mile. It's massive. And there's just these puddles of water and it's like walking past it. I'm itching so bad to get in there and take photos. So it's definitely a project that I want to work on. You could always just urbex it and 
Kind of sneak, <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, maybe get arrested, you know. Just yeah, be that's able. true. Live on the edge. I'm not suggesting or implying that you do, but (laughs) we don't we don't condone illegal activities. (laughs) Well, there's there was a building that we used to have. It was um, Martin Tower. It's the building that's the last photo on that Bethlehem article. Um, that used to be the headquarters from like 1972 until 2003, when Bethlehem Steel finally was done and they vacated. So that was their world headquarters. This really fancy, opulent building. And it's been abandoned since 2007. And they tore it down. Well, they didn't tear it down. They imploded it last year. But I was lucky enough to go in there in 2014, which was some of my images are okay. But like looking back at them, I really wish I knew how to work like a camera a little better than I do or did then. But just like documenting the inside the building, it was really need to see like especially now looking back at what it was because nowadays you drive by there it's just like a flat field you it looks like a, a bomb went off or something like that i mean all the metal's gone from the building and it's just empty but there's been some people over the years that have snuck into the building through a, a back door or something like that and gotten these really cool shots from when it was still like semi together inside there's still carpeting and walls and furnishings and all that and then everyone's gotten to the roof and I've only ever been in the lobby and the lobby was cool, but I never, I never did get to the roof of the building no matter how Lobbies hard I never tried. Compare. Lobbies yeah. never compare to the roof. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's actually pretty cool. Like I've been out to the Lehigh Valley before, but I've never seen the Bethlehem fa- like these, uh, the, the systems and structures of these factories. My sister went to Lafayette college so I went out there a couple times, but I never really had the opportunity to like explore around. It's it's definitely a really neat area because it's we have a whole mix of different things between the old abandoned factories and then there's a lot of new buildings going up with like new modern architecture. And then in North Bethlehem, the north side, you have the Hotel Bethlehem, which is like this really cool hotel from like the thirties. And there's a lot of old homes going back to seventeen hundreds and colonial area and era and all that so it's like this massive mix of different architectural styles and and different roads and it makes for pretty neat like walk just taking photos i mean because you can go from our city hall is like this really modern 1970s kind of abstract building and the library's next to it it's even more abstract and then right across the street are all these old like colonial homes and just the contrast between them is pretty pretty neat to photograph yeah, that's awesome. Well, I'll definitely have to get out there at some point again. Um, for now, man, thank you so much for joining the call. We had a really great time uh, chatting about your articles with the World War II reenactments, the Bethlehem steel mills and all that. So we definitely want to bring you on at some point in the future for another episode. But hey, I had a great time hearing all about it. Thank you. Yeah, yeah I really enjoyed this. Glad I could talk about it. I mean, pretty neat pretty neat stuff and i mean i look forward to shooting the, at least the world war ii event every year and i don't know what i'll be shooting next but it was definitely fun to talk about it for sure well yeah th- thanks for joining and we'll uh we'll talk again soon